My text this morning is from the prophecy of Micah, right there in the middle of the twelve, the twelve minor or shorter prophets of the Old Testament, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, and so on. Micah chapter 5, the first six verses. Now the subjects for preaching in Advent, as you know, are the comings or the arrivals of the Lord, his first and his second Advent. His arrival in the world as a baby that first Christmas, his coming again at the end of history. I've chosen a text for this Christmas Sunday that permits us to consider both of his comings together. Like almost all prophecies of salvation in the Old Testament prophets, this famous prophecy moves from a present situation of distress and confusion and uncertainty to a future deliverance of the most momentous kind. The section we're about to read opens with the Assyrian invasion and what seemed to be the inevitable conquest of Judah. It ends in verse 6 with Assyria's defeat. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now the unusual reference to Jerusalem as a daughter of troops is the index of Judah's present trouble. She was besieged by the Assyrian army. This is the famous siege of 701 BC when Jerusalem was surrounded by the armies of the Assyrian emperor Sennacherib. This was the time of the prophets Isaiah and Micah. Hezekiah was the king and he had attempted to restore Judah to spiritual faithfulness by a set of reforms. But humanly speaking, Hezekiah was no match for the Assyrians. Much of his kingdom had already been conquered, and of Judah's significant cities, only the capital still held out. So the king, who would have been expected to deliver the people from their peril, had himself become a whipping boy, hold up in the besieged city like everyone else. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. The but, which opens verse 2, anticipates the dramatic reversal of Jerusalem's fortunes. With the capital facing ruin, the prophet turned to this tiny village as a symbol of Israel's hope. Ephrathah was the district in which Bethlehem was located. Now you remember that Bethlehem was the family home of David, so the reference takes us back to the pure spring of the Davidic line before its corruption in the long succession of kings of Israel and Judah who had drawn the people of God away from the Lord. The idea is that this coming one will not only be a descendant of David, he will be an ideal, the ideal descendant of David. That Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in other words, signifies a new beginning. On the other hand, Bethlehem also signifies the humility, the abdignation of this man coming as he will from a tiny village, not the capital, not some great city of the Roman world, 
Can you imagine the King of Kings and the Savior of mankind coming from Puyallup? <laughs> it's hard to do. Bethlehem was so inconsequential that it was not mentioned in Joshua's survey of the towns and cities of Canaan, nor was it mentioned among the strongholds of Judah in the first chapter of Micah. But it is now, as a matter of fact, one of the most visited places on earth because the king of kings was born there. From of old, from ancient days, could be a reference to the divine eternity of the Son of God, who came into the world as a human baby, the Lord's pre-existence, in other words, always, had, always having existed as the living God. But in the context, it's more likely that it refers back some centuries to the time of David and the promise Yahweh made to him that his royal line would last forever in the person of the Messiah. Remember, Micah and Isaiah were contemporaries. Reading verse 2 that way would make it a prophecy very like what we find in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. She who is in labor is likely not a reference to Mary, but to the believing covenant community as it was just previously in chapter 4, verse 10. The point is that the promised king is going to come from the godly remnant of Israel. The believers in Israel, the faithful ones. And that's what we find in Luke. The cast of characters, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Joseph, Mary, Simeon, Anna, all were devout believers. And then again and again, the prophets predict that Messiah's kingdom, when it is established, will finally draw all the true people of God into itself, as we read here. No longer will the church be a mixture of faith and unbelief, as it is still today, or of the true and the false. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure for now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Verses 5 and 6, actually 4, 5, and 6, are so like a large number of prophecies of the Messiah and his kingdom from the ancient scriptures. They describe the conquest of the enemies of the people of God. The reference to the seven shepherds and the eight princes reminds us that the king will rule the world through and by means of his servants. The land of Nimrod is a reference to Babylon, and uh, Assyria by this time had conquered Babylon. Father in heaven, we have before us one of the memorable Christmas texts, especially verse 2 of chapter 5, the prediction that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem, as indeed it proved to be the case. But Lord, there is more here than we are likely often to see. 
Help us, O God, to understand your word. Write it upon our hearts and lift up our hearts by means of it, we pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. What we have in this text, verse 2 of which is read so widely at Christmas time, is a specimen of a large class of texts from the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Zechariah, and so on. A large class of texts that foretell the coming of the Messiah, the promised descendant of David, who would bring deliverance to his people and salvation to the world. We read those prophecies, especially in Advent, for the very obvious reason that their historical fulfillment began with the appearance of the Messiah in the world, his birth as the firstborn son of Mary and Joseph, her husband. The pent-up longing of God's people who had waited long centuries for the appearance of the Messiah, the unpreparedness of the Jews for his coming, lulled to sleep as they had been through those long centuries of waiting, are important features of the Christmas history. But so too is the surprising character of the fulfillment of the ancient promises of the coming king, who would be, of all men, most pure and most powerful. As we have often noted in our studies of the Bible through the years, the prophets characteristically saw and then described the future as a unity. The king would appear, the people of God would be unified in true faith, their enemies would be destroyed, a new and eternal kingdom of peace, purity, love, and joy would be established. Prophecy after prophecy of the Messiah's coming is like that. Isaiah 9 and 11, together with his four servant songs. Jeremiah 23 and 31, Micah 5, Zechariah 9 and 14, Malachi 4, and so on. The faithful Israelite can be forgiven for thinking that when the Messiah finally appeared, all of this was going to happen at once. The enemies of God would lie in the dust and the world, now made righteous, would rejoice in the victory of God. But in fact, the kingdom of peace and love did not come about all at once. The Messiah did come. He brought salvation to the world. He left behind an absolutely unassailable record of his Messiahship. But then he left the world again with only a promise to return a second time. It is not clear anywhere in the messianic prophecies of the ancient scriptures that the Messiah would come twice. The appearance of the great king and the establishment of his kingdom in righteousness and peace were seen by the ancient prophets as a single future. That is characteristic of the prophetic vision. Scholars call it prophetic foreshortening, the future being compressed into a single, a single vision. Or since it is so typical of Old Testament prophecy, they call it the prophetic perspective. The future is compressed into a single vision of things to come, but the chronological details are omitted. So God's people knew that the Messiah was coming and that he would bring total victory to those who loved God, but when he was to come, how long it would take to achieve his victory, 
by precisely what events that victory would be accomplished and in what order they would occur, all of those things were not said. And in the same way, we have not been told those things in respect to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's disciples could be forgiven for having struggled to understand why this conquering king, whom they now realized was no one less than the Messiah, should have been snubbed by his people, hated by its leadership, should have been humiliated on the cross, and why he should have left the world after his resurrection with only a promise to return. No one reading Isaiah and Micah could have predicted this scenario as it unfolded. And surely they were not expecting that after the Messiah arrived, the church would struggle again as she had struggled before. That she would again and again be overcome with unbelief as she had been during the days of the kings of Israel and Judah. That she would be judged repeatedly for her spiritual defections. But so it was, and so it is. And so it is that we today, we believing Christians, are waiting for the Messiah ourselves in much the same way as the faithful saints were waiting for his coming from the time of Micah to the appearance of the Lord Jesus as a baby in Bethlehem. 700 years were to pass before Jesus was born in Bethlehem and 2,000 years have passed since his first coming. And still we wait. And so we have, I think, much to learn from the similarity of our, salvation, of our situation to that of believers in Micah's day. The similarity of situation, ours with them, or theirs, is what strikes us first, and that in two respects. First, there is the honest forecast of trouble and tribulation for the people of God. The years spent waiting for the coming of the Lord would not be years of comfortable and easy living. As we read in verse 3, the fact that the Deliverer will be coming at some future time meant that meantime, God's people would be given up until that time. That is, they would have to endure pain, humiliation, and loss, just like they were enduring at the moment Micah delivered his prophecy, and just like they had endured so frequently throughout their history. Whether the sorrows of God's people were their punishment for their own sins, or whether they were God's means of purifying and maturing their faith, life was to be difficult for the people of God until the Savior appeared as, in fact, proved to be the case. Between the Assyrians and the birth of Christ was the long history of, of, of trouble endured by the people of God. Babylon, Greece, and Rome in turn put their foot on Judah's neck. And in addition, there were repeated cycles of Judah's own spiritual decline. Throughout those seven centuries, the Jews as a people declined in prestige, in number, in political influence, until at the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus, they were a small, seemingly insignificant people, thoroughly accustomed to living at somebody else's beck and call. And so it has been for us. The opening line of Micah chapter 5, verse 3, sounds very like a prophecy of the fortunes of the church since Pentecost. Indeed, is that statement, he shall give them up, any different in its meaning or implication 
from Paul's through many tribulations, it is necessary to inherit the kingdom of God, or even from the Lord's, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? This is, I think, is it not, the greatest challenge that faces the faith of the Christian church in the world, and as well, the challenge that faces its witness. She's beset by troubles on every hand. True enough, many of the troubles are of her own making, but many others are imposed by the unbelieving world around her. Why should the world throw its eggs in the church's basket when the church herself so often must struggle mightily simply to survive? And why should the people of God crave what Christians have when Christians struggle in this way or that, just like everyone else? Is this not the story of the kingdom of God as the saints through the centuries have waited for the coming of the Lord? But in the second place, there is also this concerning the time between the long years of waiting. In verses 5 and 6, in a way also very typical of the prophets, Micah describes the future in terms of his audience's own world and situation. Here, Assyria represents all forces hostile to the people of God. And the promise of those verses is that in the midst of their troubles, in the face of their enemies, God will provide. He will vindicate his people's confidence in him and his word. He will protect them. He will raise up leaders for them who will preserve them in times of trouble. And of course, as we know, this is precisely what God did. Assyrian inscriptions, as they have been discovered by archaeologists, have Sennacherib boasting of having conquered many of Hezekiah's cities and then of having bottled up Hezekiah in Jerusalem as a bird in a cage. But famously, they do not report that he conquered Jerusalem because, in fact, he did not. His army was destroyed from Herodotus, the Greek historian, we learn that it was probably destroyed by disease. Probably the bubonic plague, because Herodotus says that the Assyrian army was overcome by rats. But by whatever means, we read in the word of God that it was the angel of the Lord who delivered Jerusalem. Do you remember Lord Byron's famous poem? The Assyrian came down like a wolf on the fold and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold and the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea when the blue wave rolls nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest when summer is green, that host with their banners at sunset were seen. Like the leaves of the forest when autumn has blown, that host on the morrow lay withered and strown. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed. And the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill and their hearts but once heaved and forever grew still. And there lay the steed with his nostril all wide but through it there rolled not the breath of his pride. And the foam of his gasping lay white on the turf and cold as the spray of the rock-beating surf. 
And there lay the rider, distorted and pale, with the dew on his brow and the rust on his mail. And the tents were all silent, the banners alone, the lances unlifted, the trumpet unblown. And the widows of Asher are loud in their wail, and the idols are broke in the temples of Baal. And the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the Lord, by the sword, hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. In a way, that too, and supremely, is the story of God's people through the history of their waiting for the coming deliverer. Again and again, the Lord has protected his church. He has raised her up when she was down, granted her victory over her enemies, restored her in faith, love, hope. And so it is that no matter the trials and the tribulations appointed for her, no matter the judgments of the Lord visited upon her for her unbelief and disobedience, she remains in the world stronger than ever. Who would have thought in Micah's day or in Paul's that the church in Africa in our time would be growing by 14,000 people every single day. Who would have thought that the church in China, brutalized for a generation by an overtly hostile government that sought to destroy any and every vestige of Christian presence and life in China, would have throughout that terrible half century grown from 750,000 souls to well over 100 million Again and again, the churches had cause to sing, and the widows of Asher are loud in their wail, and the idols are broke in the temples of Baal, and the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, have melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. In both these ways, the unending difficulties, the ups and the downs, and the Lord's protection and blessing, our situation, waiting for the second coming of the Lord, has been and is today so like that of the believers in Micah's day who were waiting for his first coming. But there is also a great difference between their situation and ours, a difference that I'm sure is meant wonderfully to encourage us, give us hope, Christians have long debated what the difference actually is. For example, some have argued that the saints in Micah's day did not enjoy the fullness of salvation because Christ had not yet accomplished that salvation on the cross and by his resurrection. Some Roman Catholic theologians maintained that the souls of the believing dead in the ancient epoch could not and did not rise to heaven because the way to heaven, the entrance to heaven, had not yet been opened by the Lord. They were held instead in what they called the limbus patrum, the limbus of the fathers. That is a place on the border of heaven where they had to wait until Christ opened the door to heaven by his life, his death, and his resurrection. Even some Reformed theologians especially the celebrated Johannes Coxius of the 17th century, held that believers in the ancient epoch had only an incomplete 
an imperfect, a provisional forgiveness of their sins, that their sins could not be fully forgiven, their consciences not fully cleansed until Christ's death on the cross. But that's hardly what we read in the Word of God. Paul, for example, used Abraham and David as his principal examples of how sinners are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And the grandest statements of the full and free forgiveness of sins found in the Bible are found in what we nowadays refer to as the Old Testament. One of them in the very last chapter of this prophecy of Micah. It is in the Old Testament we read that the Lord has separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, that he has trampled them under his feet, that he has cast them behind his back, that he remembers them no more, that he has buried them in the deepest sea. Coxius' argument was based entirely on a mistranslation of a phrase of the Apostle Paul's in Romans chapter 3, and thankfully it was quickly consigned to that place reserved for the dumbest ideas of Christian theologians, namely graduate schools. (laughs) In fact, the New Testament never actually says that we who live on the far side of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and Pentecost have some advantage over believers who lived before the first coming of Jesus Christ. That's a striking fact. That's a fact it is. But that hardly means that there is no such advantage. We have an advantage, a great advantage. And the advantage is simply this. The promised ruler was born in Bethlehem. Half of Micah's prophecy has already been fulfilled already come to pass in history. I've spent many a day of my life in the mountains of Colorado. And when one climbs high mountains in the Rockies, he learns to expect that when he finally reaches the top of that ridge above him, which he has been sure is the top of the mountain, he's going to find that it is not as he had hoped the top of the mountain. He's still only part way to the top. Another ridge looms beyond and above him. This can be discouraging for a tired climber. But at the same time, when he turns to look back and down, he is immediately encouraged by how far he has already come and how high he has already climbed. And so it is with the coming of the Lord. The disciples of the Lord Jesus thought at first that they had reached the top of the mountain only to learn that a wide valley and a still higher summit lay beyond them. But what does that mean for us? Surely it means that we can have, we ought to have, we ought to live with a far greater confidence in the full and final consummation of the kingdom of God every day. When we're told centuries beforehand that some remarkable things are going to happen in the world. Things that cannot be accounted for by any other human calculation. And when centuries later, these very things come to pass, who are we then to doubt that what remains of those remarkable prophecies is sure to be fulfilled? If we were told in ancient days that a descendant of David would arrive in the world, a person, both God and man, both a baby and a mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, born in the village of Bethlehem, 
grown up to be a man of unprecedented goodness and incomparable power, and that his kingdom would be established and would soon overspread the world. And then that very person appeared, and that kingdom was established. Who are we ever to doubt that the triumph and consummation of that kingdom, also prophesied long centuries before, will in due time come to pass? The fulfillment of some of Micah's prophecy, remarkable as it was, inexplicable as it was, as anything other than the work of God himself, is the guarantee that the rest is sure to come. It's one thing to live as part of the remnant in an unwelcoming world, as Micah's believing and faithful contemporaries did. It's one thing to maintain the hope of deliverance through many generations when no one else in the world believes that such a deliverer will ever appear. It is another thing altogether to live in lively hope when that hope has already been vindicated in history in the most undeniable, the most breathtaking, the most invincible way. Angelic announcements of the coming of David's long-awaited heir, a virgin birth, a sinless life. (coughs) Teaching that you may not fully realize, teaching that has absolutely transformed the thinking of this world. Miracles of surpassing power and effect, and then the cross, the empty tomb, the ascension to the right hand, and the promise of his return. It's not easy to wait in living hope and eager expectation, not after 2,000 years have come and gone, but it's a lot easier for us than it was for them. Half of what Micah told them to expect has already happened, and that first half is undeniably the guarantee of the second. Behind us, Christ born, crucified, risen, ascended to heaven. Before us, Christ returning. And this world, in every part, in every respect, becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Remember, all biblical prophecy is contextualized. It was all delivered to God's people in a particular historical situation, almost always difficult, troubled, sorrowful. The prophecies of future deliverance are made to those who in one way or another at that time or this find themselves in need of hope and need of deliverance. In the midst of our struggles, whatever they may be, in the midst of our troubles, however heavy they may be, we hear of the coming one who is going to bring us light and peace and safety and love and joy without measure. And who can doubt this future when the very Savior has already come and then promised to come again? Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.